0: Well, let's turn to Mark's Gospel, and we're going to be in chapter 8. That's page 1011 in the Church Bibles, and page 1569 in the large print. And before we come to this passage, let's ask the Lord to help us, and let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we've been singing of your wonderful grace, grace that we can't measure. And Father, it's just by your grace that we can be here together. It's by your grace that anyone can preach your word. It's by your grace that you open our eyes and our ears and our minds to hear your word. And Father, I pray that by your grace this evening we would see you more clearly, know you more deeply, We would love you more. And as we've been singing, that all that we have, we would lay at your feet in response to your love. So we pray for your help now. Would you send your spirit, Lord, to speak to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I prepared for preaching this evening, I knew we were getting to a point in the middle of Mark, which was really important. So I listened again to the very first sermon that Tim preached on Mark uh, many months ago. And the reason I did that was because he said something really important that I want us to remember, which I've got on a slide here. He reminded us that the Gospel of Mark is split into two sections – And Mark chapter 8 and verse 29 is the the midpoint of the gospel. It's the hinge around which the book turns. And the first section, which we're going to finish this evening, uh, describes the displays of Jesus' power and the slow realisation of the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's showing who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah. As we get to chapter 8 and verse 29, Peter, on behalf of the disciples, declares, You are the Messiah. They finally seem to understand. But they don't quite understand what kind of Messiah he's going to be. And Mark spends the rest of his gospel explaining what kind of Messiah Jesus will be. And this final section of Mark has the three predictions of Jesus' death and resurrection showing, like we read in Isaiah 53, that Jesus will be a suffering Messiah. And Tim mentioned that uh, the life of Christ, in a way, is a paradox. A paradox is a truth that conflict with itself. That there's a man with the power of Almighty God who gives himself to die to save others. And we'll see this evening that that's what the Messiah is going to do. Just before Peter's declaration, though, the disciples still did not completely understand who Jesus is. They had an idea who he was all along. In fact, if you go, well, don't turn the now, but if you were to go to John chapter 1 and verse 41, you'll see that Andrew, in that passage, says that Jesus is the Messiah. So they always had an idea that this could be the Messiah, But the problem was he never lived up to what their preconceived ideas of a Messiah was. They expected a Messiah to conquer the land, to defeat Romans. But he was hated by the religious leaders and he even paid taxes to Rome. The evidence was there, but they couldn't get over their own expectations. They see, but they don't quite see. And tonight we're going to examine how we are the same. We see but we don't see and we need to see Jesus clearer. This is in contrast to where we left off last week. We left off with the Pharisees who were looking for a sign. They had seen many signs but they were blind to the meaning of them. They didn't need signs, the Pharisees needed sight and as we come to chapter 8 and verse 14 we see that the disciples didn't see that well either. So let's read together uh, the first few verses of of the passage. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? This whole section, this little uh, discourse here, shows a lack of understanding. And in part this is because of the disciples' worldly thinking. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf. It seemed that they were in a rush to get in the boat and they had one loaf. I know how this feels a little bit because when I, was, when I, didn't, when I didn't work from home, I used to take a packed lunch. And sometimes in the rush to get out to work, I'd leave it at home. But I could always go and get a sandwich or fast food or something like that. And sometimes if my pack lunch looked particularly grim, I'd forget it on purpose. But in the middle of the lake, there was no um, place to go and buy food. And they were worried, it seemed, that they only had one loaf. They were worried about their stomachs. Jesus was giving them an object lesson. He picked up the loaf and he said, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Well, yeast in the Bible is often used as a symbol of evil or corruption and false teaching. Those of you that know much about bread know that the yeast is small, very small. But the effect on the bread is huge, isn't it? It makes the bread rise. And in proportion to its size, the yeast has a large impact. And Jesus is warning them to be careful about the evil and corruption of the teaching of the Pharisees and of the Herodians that could impact and infiltrate their lives. And in a similar way, or in the same way really, we need to be aware of the yeast of false teaching that we need to know about and be aware of so that it doesn't impact in our lives and in our church. So it was a lesson that they should understand and see the meaning of, but they didn't see The talk of yeast reminded them of the fact that they'd forgotten bread. And their discussion amongst themselves was probably some kind of argument as to whose fault it was that they have no bread. Is it because we have no bread? They asked. Well, seeing Jesus clearer needs focused attention. This morning I was teaching in the Sunday school and I was teaching the three to five year old class. Now, the three- to five-year-old class is the cutest class of our three Sunday school classes, but it's, for me, the one I find hardest to teach, because I can spend hours preparing a lesson, and I can teach them some things which I think are really exciting and really wonderful, and then at the end of the lesson, I can say to them, what did we learn today? And they could say something like, oh, you've got a beard, or I need the toilet, or... When is the drinking biscuits and all those kind of things? And you start to wonder, was there any point to anything that I've just taught? That's not to discourage any of you from teaching that class. Um, I do know from my youngest daughter that they do pick up some of the things we say. And I'm sure it's the same thing when we preach. We just pretend it's not. But the disciples were a bit like that class. They were on the wrong track completely. And it was because their minds were on their stomachs and not on their teacher and on the lesson. And we are never going to understand the things of God when our minds are constantly buried in the things of earth. So when we're more interested in our hobbies than in our saviour and we don't spend any time with him, that's when we're thinking more of earthly things and our attention is not focused on Christ. Or perhaps when we're so busy... I don't know if you find this, but I've sometimes found this in my life. I can be so busy doing good things, but when I come to read the Bible for myself, or when I come to pray, my mind is wandering and it's distracted over all the stuff I've got to do. My attention isn't focused on Christ. If that's the case, then we're perhaps too busy. Or when our lives revolve around material things, and we're constantly focusing our attention on how to get the next Uh, phone or tablet or you know whatever else it is that we want to get the next of or even I don't know if you've ever come to church on a Sunday morning and your mind's on your stomach you're thinking oh did I put the oven on or uh, something like that you know our attention can be focused on lots of things except Christ can't it and we need to focus our attention on Jesus and what he is saying otherwise we will never see him very clearly and we will be vulnerable to the yeast of the evil and the corruption and the false teaching in our world. Perhaps in your life you need to give up some things or reprioritize some things so that your life revolves around Christ and not anything else. Although there was something wrong with their spiritual understanding, it seemed from the next part that there was nothing wrong with their maths. Look at verses 17 to 21. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did, of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? It's amazing, isn't it, that they have seen Jesus feed 5,000. And in the passage we looked at last week, he'd fed 4,000. And they just got into the boat after that event. And Jesus asked them, why are you thinking about bread? You know, if there's one thing they didn't need to worry about, you would think it was the fact that they didn't have enough bread. He'd just fed 5,000 and he'd just, very just, fed 4,000. It seems that as we read in Mark chapter 6 and verse 32, they didn't understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. It hadn't changed. And then Jesus gives them a reminder to show them their foolishness. He says, don't you remember how many basketfuls did you have left over? After I'd fed the 5,000, you had 12 basketfuls. After I fed the 4,000, you had seven basketfuls. Don't you understand, Jesus said? You see, they, they saw with their eyes, and they heard with their ears, but they didn't understand, and in fact, they just didn't even remember what God had done for them. And if we're going to see Jesus clearer, we need to have a remembrance of God's power. In the stress of the moment, don't we so easily forget how God has cared for and has provided for us in the past. When we are worried about things, or unsure how things are going to turn out, shouldn't we be looking back to all those times when jesus has provided for us and has cared for us but we so easily forget don't we we need to remember how god has answered our prayers in the past in many many ways we need to remember our testimony of how god has saved us and the testimony of how he has saved other people we need to remember for those those times when you know every time we go on a journey Uh, We we pray for safety, don't we? But do we ever thank God when we arrive that God has delivered us safely? We so easily forget, don't we? We need to remember clearly what Jesus has done for us, his power, how how he's been with us throughout our lives. But in the stress of the moment when we only have one loaf, we so easily forget what God has done for us. We need to open our eyes And see him clearly and remember his power. And all of us struggle with these kind of things, don't we? We all forget what God has done for us. And the reason we struggle is because this side of heaven, we don't see Jesus as clearly as we will do then. And our vision of Jesus becomes clearer as we get to know him more. And Jesus illustrates this in his miracle in verses 22 to 25, or 22 to 30. So let's read that together. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he... Uh, sorry, I've got this a bit wrong. Um, that was my printing. Yeah, they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people bought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on them, Jesus asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Now this miracle that we've just read is recorded only in Mark's gospel and it's put here for a reason, to illustrate that the spiritual eyes of the disciples were gradually opening. The fact that Jesus does this miracle in two parts isn't because he messed it up the first time, it was to illustrate a point to his disciples and this miracle is a bridge between the lack of understanding in verses 14 to 21 and the declaration of Peter in verse 29, where his eyes were opened to who Jesus is. And in this miracle, it's Jesus who opens the man's eyes. And spiritually, it was Jesus who opened the disciples' eyes. And of course, it's Jesus who opens our eyes to the truth of who he is. But in both cases... In the case of the man here, in the case of the disciples in a moment, and in the case of us, this opening of our eyes is gradual. We see Jesus clearer, but it's gradual, but will be full. So as he comes to Bethsaida, some people bring this man to Jesus and begged him to touch him. As amazing as this is, as we read Mark's Gospel, we see that this is quite normal. People uh, come to Jesus all the time, don't they, for these kind of things. But Jesus didn't heal him there and then. For an unknown reason, he takes the man out of the village. And like with the deaf and mute man we read last week, he spat, uses his, his spittle on the man, on his eyes in this case, and put his hand on them. And the man didn't see fully. He could see, but he could not see. I see people, they look like trees walking around, he said. And this symbolises the spiritual eyes of the disciples that were gradually being opened. And became more open in verse 29. When Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes again, they are fully opened. And this shows how our eyes are open too. We gradually see Jesus clearer and clearer and then 1 John uh, chapter 3 tells us that when we see him we will see him as he is we will then see him clearly we will see him face to face and Jesus sent the man back to the village again uh, and, not, and told him not even well he said not even to go back to the village not to tell anyone again he wants to be not known as just a miracle worker we'll see shortly that he's so much more than that And we do not fully ourselves see Jesus as he is yet. We have God revealed to us. We have enough for saving faith. And as we grow, we continue to see him more clearly. But we don't know everything yet. Do you ever read the scriptures and find things that you don't understand? I do. I find that a lot. I see, but I don't see. And we need, therefore, to be constantly studying and growing in God's word so that we can gradually see more and more of Jesus. We need to constantly be growing in that way. Do you ever find things that happen in your life and there just seems to be no good in it whatsoever? You can't understand why this is going on. We don't see clearly yet. We we, we kind of see that God's in it somehow, but, but we don't see. We see, but we don't see. In fact, in, uh, I'm sure this is the same for us all, but the more <coughs> that I know of God, the more I realise I don't know. It's like another paradox, isn't it? The, the deeper I go with God, the more I find there is to know. The more I know of God's grace, the more I realise my sin. And, and, and it goes on. You know, in, in our Christian lives... I meet people uh, that have been Christians for, for many, many years and you think surely they must, they must get it, but they've got such an awareness of sin in their life and you wonder, do, do they even sin? But they, but they know the grace of God and, and, and the more we know, the more we don't know. The more we grow, the more we know we need to see and, and it, it's just amazing, isn't it, that that's the way it works. But we see Jesus clearer, but it's gradual. But one day, we'll see him fully and clearly. In fact, Paul uh, illustrates this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. He says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. In the ESV it says in a mirror dimly. Then we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We see him gradually, but we will one day see clearly. And we see now as we come to this next key section in Mark that the disciples seem to see, but they don't see. They kind of see trees moving around. And as we read this, we'll see what we need to see in order to see Jesus clearer. I hope that makes sense to you. And first of all, we need to see who Jesus is. So let's read verses 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Well, as they were going around to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and his disciples were in conversation. And Jesus seemed to use these everyday conversations to teach his disciples. And he asked them in this conversation who people say that he is. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is well known. Flocks of people come to see him heal and to hear him teach. And all the people seemed to agree that something amazing was happening, a revival or a reappearance of of, um, the religious spirit of Israel's past. Perhaps he's Elijah, or he's one of the prophets, or John the Baptist who had recently died. This is why uh, they say he's a reappearance of these people, because he does so many things. But none of the people thought he was the Messiah, Again like the disciples he didn't meet what their expectations of the messiah was. They perhaps expected a military leader like a Joshua or a king David. They expected Israel to be a, an earthly kingdom again. They didn't think he was the messiah. But Jesus then asked them perhaps well definitely the most important question that any of us can be asked. This is the question on which our eternity depends. Who do you say I am? And when Jesus is asking this, the you is plural. He's asking this to all of the disciples. And Peter answers as the spokesman for them when he says, you are the Messiah. Messiah is another word for Christ, which means anointed of God. The disciples were saying Jesus is the one sent from God to bring God's kingdom. Up to this point, they'd seen him as the herald of God's kingdom, but now they see him as the king of the kingdom. They finally get who he is. And as we apply this particular part, I wonder if any of you here know the answer to that question. When Jesus says to you, who do you say I am? Can you say with the disciples here, you are the Messiah. You are the one, the king who has come. You are God." has brought salvation. You have died, you have risen, you have done this for us. Is he your king? Is he your Messiah? But strangely it seems Jesus tells them in verse 30 not to tell anyone about this. Why? Because the term Messiah brought about all those nationalistic expectations that prevented people from believing him. You see the disciples at this point, got the person. They understood who Jesus is, but they didn't get the plan. They didn't understand why he came. And if we're going to see Jesus clearer, we need to understand why he came. Look at verses 31 to 33. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. As soon as the disciples understood the person of Jesus... The Bible says then, at that moment, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He did it then to immediately quash their expectations and beliefs in some kind of warrior Messiah. Jesus' kingdom would come not by physical power, but by suffering. And the Bible says he spoke plainly here. He spoke in a way that was it wasn't a parable, there was nothing ambiguous unclear, he spoke plainly, so that the disciples understood. And it's interesting how Peter sees and does not see here. He sees the death of Jesus, which to him is a great defeat, but he does not seem to hear that Jesus is going to rise again. Otherwise, he perhaps wouldn't have been so irate to rebuke him. Peter only seems to see the death part and therefore he rebukes Jesus. Perhaps some context would help us understand Peter's rebuke here. Notice how Jesus uses the, 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 the title Son of Man, which is what we read about in the book of Daniel. And Peter rightly viewed Jesus as the Messiah who will have that dominion that will not pass away and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. And Jesus doesn't rebuke this, 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 this theology, but he corrects the misinterpretation of it. You see, he does bring a kingdom that will never be destroyed, but it's just not some earthly Israeli kingdom, it's a heavenly kingdom that begins in the hearts of believers and will be consummated in a new heaven, a new earth, where we will reign with Christ forever. But in order for us to be part of that kingdom, we need to have sin dealt with because in God's presence there can be no sin. So Jesus came to atone for our sin. He would have to die to pay for it. So Peter conveniently didn't think about passages like Isaiah 53 where Jesus is the suffering Messiah. And as Jesus rebuked Peter, he appears to even call him Satan. And Satan, through Peter, was tempting Jesus to establish a kingdom away from the cross and immediately through conquest. But this would not be an eternal kingdom, would it? It would be an earthly kingdom and sin would not be dealt with. They got the person, they didn't get the plan. They saw, but they didn't see. And they didn't see clearly because they didn't understand why he came. And part of the reason they didn't understand why he came was because they didn't like the plan, did they? He didn't like the plan of, I'm going to die. He saw that as some sort of defeat. And we often don't like the plan of God either, do we? We see it, and perhaps we don't see it, or we don't even like it. So for example, some of us may struggle with the idea that our God, who is a God of love, is also a God of wrath, and that's that kind of doctrines avoided a lot in these days. We don't like that part of God's word. Some of you may struggle with the fact that God is a God who forgives even those that are offensive to us. We don't like that part of God's plan. Perhaps even some of you are struggling with the thought that God would forgive you for what you have done. That's part of God's plan. And many... Uh, perhaps struggle with doctrines of grace such as God's sovereign election. That's often attacked in these days. And in order to make the gospel more palatable to others, human concerns, these doctrines are watered down and even denied. And the attacks and disbelief on these things is an attack on the work of Jesus on the cross. And any attack Anyone that devalues the work of Christ on the cross is doing the work of Satan. And we see that a lot in these days. Books are written attacking the cross, even by people professing to be Christians. It's the work of the devil. And furthermore, with all of these things, in fact, with all of the Bible, we'll never fully understand it. None of us are ever going to fully get it all. And this side of heaven, sometimes we just have to accept what the Bible says without understanding everything. We must accept the plans and purposes of God as he gives them in his word. And as we do so, Jesus will be made clearer. And in addition to surprising the disciples as to why he came, he surprised the crowds too when he explained what it means to follow him. If the plan of why he came was hard... As we read this next part, it perhaps gets even harder. Because seeing Jesus clearer is understanding what it means to follow him. Look at verses 34 to 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Like previously, this is unexpected and unwanted. And it continues this paradoxical way that Jesus speaks. The first paradox was a man with the power of a mighty God who suffers and dies for his people. And then this paradox is that the Christian life is winning by losing. It's gaining much from denying everything. It's saving life by losing life. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, if you uh, have ever done the Christianity Explored course, the, the final session, the invitation would seem strange. It's titled, Come and Die. Come and Die. And this is the invitation that Jesus gives here. He doesn't give an invitation to to promise you some sort of um, earthly wealth and happiness. He doesn't give uh, an invitation to put your hand up if you want to go to heaven. He gives an invitation that says we've got to die to self. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean that we lose the problems of this life. In fact, I would go as far as saying that as a Christian, we should suffer more than average. Why? Because in our way of life, we are told to deny ourselves and take up a cross. He doesn't ask us for pointless suffering like self-flagellation, but to follow him in a, such a way that suffering is faced head-on, knowing that we do so because Jesus is worthy. It's not pointless. It's done because Jesus is worthy. So first he says that whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves. It's easy for our lives to revolve around us, isn't it? Do you ever find it easy to to live your life for yourself? I find that extremely easy. That's my natural inclination. Uh, You talked this morning um, in Romans about, how, where, you know, sin began in Adam. And it's all passed on. Our inclination is to live for self, isn't it? To, to live for ourselves. But Jesus says, no, we must deny ourselves. And that's not to stop having a good time. Jesus isn't saying that we must pointlessly give up everything, although um, I, I think, you know, sometimes it's good to perhaps fast some things In order so that we don't become dependent on them. But Jesus isn't saying to pointlessly give up all things that are good. But he's saying to forget yourself. C.S. Lewis defines this well when he defines true humility. He says true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And that's what Jesus is talking of here. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. A disciple of Jesus should be so focused on Jesus that the impact on themselves of following him is not the first thing on their mind. And if we deny ourselves in this way, then we can obey the commands of scripture that are difficult and cause us suffering. So for example, if we can deny ourselves when we tell people about Jesus, and we can get laughed at because our reputation at school or at work is not as important as obeying Christ, I deny myself. In fact, uh, the other, uh, even this week, uh, Jacob was talking to us at dinner and he said, um, Dad, why is it that at my school I tell people about Jesus and they laugh at me and they tell me it's not true? And I said to him, that's the, that's the Christian life. We, we have to, we, we get laughed at, we get ridiculed. It's not. A, it's not an easy thing to do to share our faith, but we deny ourselves because our reputation is not as important as Christ's. We deny ourselves when we continue working for God in our weekends, in our free time, in our retirement, rather than spending all our time for ourselves and thinking it's all my time. We deny ourselves by saying, "Lord, what do you want me to do?" with my time we deny ourselves and we put Jesus first we deny ourselves when we say no to things that we used to do things that are sinful we say yes I know that I'm tempted I want to do them but we say no I'm going to obey the commands of God because I deny myself we deny ourselves when helping others becomes a habit not an inconvenience we don't put ourselves first First of all, Jesus says here we must say no to self, but then in taking up the cross, we say no to safety. Because the cross was a symbol of suffering and death, which is most clearly seen when Jesus took it on himself, didn't he? Well, does Jesus ask us to do the same? Is he saying to us that we must die and be martyred? Well, all of the disciples, with the exception of John, tradition and church history tells us, did die for their faith. And across this world today, there are many Christians that just for saying they believe in Jesus means death. So in, for many, this is very real, isn't it? Very real indeed. They take up a cross of death. But what about Christians in the UK? How do we take up the cross? How do we suffer? Well, if you're committed to people and to their needs, as we all should be, You're going to suffer pain in terms of rejection, in terms of hurting on behalf of other people. It hurts, we suffer. If you're committed to serving Christ as we all should be with our time, you are going to suffer tiredness. If you're committed to proclaiming the gospel as we all should be, you are going to suffer ridicule, hostility. And maybe even friendships that are lost, family ties. That are broken. That happens sometimes when we proclaim Christ. And we shouldn't avoid this suffering, but rather embrace it. We put Jesus first in all that we do. And in denying ourselves, we take up our cross and we follow him. And to follow is to have a likeness, to to imitate. And we imitate Jesus in the way he was completely surrendered to the will of God to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I wonder, have you been a bit apathetic in your Christian life lately? Have you been following Jesus from a distance rather than following him at the front line? He's challenging you here not to a life of comfort, but to a life of service to the king where we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. This isn't easy teaching, is it, friends? This is difficult. This is hard. And some of you may be asking, is it worth it? Well look what Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose, forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for a soul? Friends, it is worth doing, it's worth the suffering. The eternal blessings far outweigh the earthly sufferings. Our physical lives, the things of this world will perish. Our material wealth will be gone. Our looks will go, for for some of us that ever arrived, but our bodies will die. Uh, Those things will disappear, won't they? They'll go. But the things of the gospel will last and they should be more valuable, more precious than anything else in this life. And it should even override our self-preservation because even if you gain the whole world, which, you know, Jesus is using hyperbole here, isn't he? Nobody owns the whole world. But even if you did, it's not worth forfeiting your soul over. What an offence to God that we, we, we treasure such trivial things, don't we? Above the things of God. And this is something that I struggle with too. You know, we, we, we treasure such trivial things when there's so much better in Christ. And as if that wasn't incentive enough to follow him, we end with a warning to those who reject his invitation. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You know, when Jesus is talking here, by the way, he's not talking of some one-off time when you've hidden your faith. Just like before, he's not talking about some one-off time you've avoided suffering or some one-off time... Or even right now, where you perhaps aren't living as you should for Christ. He's not saying you've lost your salvation. He's talking here of continual rejection of Christ. But if in your life you've never given anything for Jesus, and you've never suffered whatsoever, then you have to wonder, are you saved? Because the Christian life does cost. But for those who continually reject Jesus, he says, I will be ashamed of them when I come in my Father's glory with the holy angels. And notice how he uses that phrase, Son of Man, here again. In the end, this is what the Son of Man will do. Yes, he will suffer, but like it says in Daniel, he will come as king and judge of a kingdom and dominion that will never end. Only those who are ashamed of themselves will be part of that kingdom, not those who are ashamed of Christ. The approval of Christ should mean more to us than anything else. If we want to see Jesus clearer, we need to understand what it means to follow him. So as we finish, how is your eyesight tonight? Is your attention on him? Are you remembering his power? Do you recognise who he is and why he came? And do you realise what it means to follow him? Well, as we close, we're going to sing a couple of songs where we dedicate our lives to Jesus. First of all, we sing, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And then we'll sing, Jesus, all for Jesus. So let's stand to sing, and let's sing from our hearts, committing our whole lives to the Lord Jesus Christ.